Hello everyone, Adrian here, and thank you for tuning in to Between the Bedside and the Boardroom, a conversation without titles, hierarchies, office or unit politics or drama, a podcast where we have tough, candid, and transparent discussions about what is really going on in healthcare, how are we going to heal from the last few years, disrupt the status quo, and use our collective knowledge, expertise, and the sheer volume in our numbers to create the urgent change we need in healthcare in America. Thank you for listening. Please grab a snack and your favorite beverage. It's time we unplug and plug healthcare back in again, one conversation at a time. Hello, thank you for listening. Right now in Oregon, there is a lot of discussion and news coverage about Oregon House Bill 2697. The bill would mandate minimum staffing requirements in many healthcare settings. As you can imagine, there are opposing views of this bill. And while some are saying this is what we need to hold hospitals accountable to safe staffing, others are saying that this will not solve the nursing shortage and actually could limit access to care in an already severely underbedded state. I personally have never worked in a state with staffing ratios, and I've been really curious to hear from those who have had this experience. I don't feel like I have enough information to formulate my own strong opinion on this, but I did have the good fortune to talk to two nurses with very different backgrounds and in different roles in their organizations who I don't think that they know each other. Well, at least I'm pretty sure they don't know each other. Nursing is a really small world. However, they did not get to hear each other's conversations yet. Um... However, they had very similar perspectives and share stories from their experiences working in states with and without ratios. And two main themes sort of organically came up in both discussions around the impact to patient safety and both short and long-term impacts of nurse resiliency. This first conversation that you'll hear is with a phenomenal clinical nurse named Tim, who I have had the pleasure of knowing since he was a new grad nurse. He shares how working in a state with ratios has changed his outlook on nursing, and I just loved hearing the joy in his voice when he talked about being a nurse. I love talking to Tim about what he thinks we need to do to keep patients safe and nurses from leaving bedside. And spoiler alert, it's not one answer. I'm so, so grateful for Tim, and thank you for listening. Hi, Tim. Hello. Oh, my gosh. I'm so excited. Thank you so much for uh, being on uh, on the podcast and having a conversation with me today. Of course. Happy to do it. So um, I feel like we have known each other for a very long time. We um, have. But also, I haven't talked to you in a very long time. So mm-hmm. uh, you'll have to excuse all my excitement because I'm just that... excited to hear from you. <laughs> <laughs> Likewise. Um, Oh, thank you. Well, why don't, if if you don't mind, why don't we just start off with you telling us a little bit about yourself and your relationship to healthcare, if you will, how as much or as little as you want to talk about. Sure. Gosh. Um, you know, I've, I, my whole life I've either been, you know, healthcare adjacent or participating in healthcare. I grew up with, uh, a mom who worked in uh, one of the big hospital labs in Portland, Portland Adventist. And so she was always talking about 
lab and healthcare and doing that kind of stuff. And then my first uh, job after I graduated, I I worked directly with um, nurses. I helped uh, as a administrative coordinator for both the midwifery program and nurse practitioner program at OHSU. And then I moved into cancer research. I worked for the Knight Cancer Institute at OHSU for almost 10 years running clinical drug trials. And then I finally decided that being a doctor was a waste of my time and went to nursing <laughs> school and uh, became a nurse and then actually worked with you. You were my manager on the MICU and I did that for, gosh, uh, four and a half years and then decided I needed to go and spread my wings and do something else for a little bit. So I've been doing uh, travel nursing for almost a year now. Um, that feels, it feels like yesterday that we were working together, but I, I guess it was a little bit longer than yesterday. I know, isn't that wild? So have you been, at, since you've been a nurse, you've been in critical care the whole time? Uh, I did very briefly before I was able to get into OHSU's internship. I worked very briefly back in research as a, uh, a research nurse for probably like three months, okay, four months. Check. Yeah. So... Yeah, I've, I've dipped my toes into that a little bit too, but yeah, mostly critical care. For, so I put out a, uh, like a question box or what have you asking if anybody would be willing to talk to me about um, staffing ratios. It's a really mm -hmm. hot topic in Oregon right now. It's mm -hmm. um, the health bill is up for um, um, lots of discussion. And mm -hmm. So, and so thank you for responding to my request to talk about it. I appreciate it. And of you've course. had a chance to work in both a state with mandated staffing ratios and without. So I'm just really curious about just your perspective in general. And then I have a feeling that's going to spur a lot of other questions that I have. Sure, so, yeah. sure, 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 sure. Um, let's see. Gosh, it's... It's been so interesting to come down to California and just have my perspective shift so quickly on, you know, what is possible and what it feels like to have an enforced staffing ratio. Um, I remember my first week down here, I was, I, you know, I got my patient assignment, I'm getting settled in, and my, um, they call them float nurses at Stanford. Uh, my float nurse came up to me and was like, when do you want, when do you want your first break? Uh, when do you want your second break? And when do you want your third break? And I was like, excuse me, what? <laughs> <laughs> when do I want what? And oh she proceeded to explain to me like, oh yeah, like this is, this is how staffing works here. Like I'm your float nurse. I will cover your patient when you go on your breaks. And I ended up like getting, I think, I think it was like an hour and a half total of break time. Oh, wow. And it was, it's wild. Like, and I, you know, like it was so nice to step away for that amount of time and not worry about my patient. When I came back, things had gotten done. Progress and continue to be made on, you know, progressing the patient's care and, you know, I didn't even have to think about it or worry. Whereas, you know, um, you remember, you know, as a manager, we're, we're in the critical care, we're in, we're in our ICU, we don't, we have a support nurse on the MICU that we both used to work on and a charge mm -hmm. nurse. And 
you had to arrange breaks with your your partner next to you. So you could be watching four ICU patients uh, for up to 45 minutes while you wait for someone to go have their break, which is incredibly stressful. And, you know, you hope to God that you stirred somebody up appropriately to your pod buddy before you step away and, you know, Sometimes something bad would happen and you'd have to come back or sometimes you couldn't get someone tuned up enough that they could be, you know, sat on for 45 minutes and uh, you wouldn't even get a break. So it just kind of all depended. Mm. So just just that perspective of, you know, like there is someone designated to take care of this person. I don't have to think about it. I can relax. I can take care of myself for 15 minutes, 30 minutes you know, 45 minutes and, and just have that moment to, you know, take care of myself, eat something, drink something, go to the bathroom, come back and jump back into my patient and taking care of them. It's lovely. You, it does sound like a different experience. Um, And I don't know if this was intentional, but one of the things I picked up that you said, Tim, was when you're in sort of the pod buddy situation, you Mm -hmm. had someone to cover your patients. Whereas the word that you used for somebody um, in your experience in California is that you had somebody to take care of your patients. Mm -hmm. Am I reading too much into your words? I don't want to put words in your mouth, but to me, those are very different things like covering your patient versus taking care of your patient. Seems very different to me. I, I mean, it is. And it's sort of like, so a better way to, I can, I can drill down more into like what this float nurse role is that Stanford has set up, but yeah. it's basically like you have your own designated support nurse per every three to four nurses. There's a backup nurse mm-hmm. who essentially gets report on all of those patients And then they are continuously checking in to see if you need any help. And then when it's time for your break, they cover your patients while you go and take your break. So they're, they're just there in the background, either helping or breaking whoever's turn it is to go on break. And, um, you know, it's, there's, there's sort of that model, I guess, at least at OHSU, but it's on a much larger scale. And because of that, you know, you have one support nurse, say, on the MICU covering 16 patients, and you have, you know, uh, a support nurse and maybe one of the rapid response nurses, depending on what's going in the hospital, covering, what is it, like 24 beds up on the CVICU. Um, and they, they're they just stretched so thin. If there's any hot spots, there's no way that they can focus in and help cover any breaks or or take care of, you know, anything that arises within a smaller subset of patients. Mm. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting to feel that level of support. It's been also interesting to feel like I feel so much less stressed as a nurse when I'm at work Mm. because I feel like the amount of support that is available to me um, is much greater. If that makes sense. It does make sense. And you also said when you were talking about feeling, you know, less stressed, but also that you could take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. So can you expand a little bit? Like, what does that mean? You know, uh, I'm I'm envisioning like 
where you know someone's covering for you, um, mm-hmm. whether that means now they have two, three, maybe four patients versus mm-hmm. having, you know, your, your break where you know someone's progressing your care. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that translate to you taking care of yourself differently? Yeah, I think, um, I think, and, and I'm sure you can relate to this too, going back to when you were, you know, bedside, when you, when you step away and you have somebody who has their own patients covering your patients, the kind of the thought is, well, I've, I've gotten this person to a point where they can kind of stall or Mm. sit and not really have anything happen for the next 45 minutes. And I don't think anything bad is going to happen, you know, depending on what, what's going on with the patient, but I feel like they're okay to sit there and, you know, like idle, like a car Mm. um, and not really move forward. Whereas um, what I'm experiencing now is there may be things that I haven't quite gotten to yet, but I know that, my float nurse or my break nurse will take care of that for me because before I leave, I can say, these are the four or five things that I have to do. Please do them while I'm gone. And they'll just continue to move forward. So there's no stalling. There's no idling. Patient care can continue to be progressed. And how does that translate to you being like you taking care of yourself. Sure. So, so that, so then, yeah, like if that idling is occurring, I'm thinking in the back of my head, like I continue to have to have things, you know, you like, you're worried, you're, you're running your Mm. brain. You're like, what am I going to do when I get back? I need to do this. I need to do that. And there's just a level of like continuing to work even when you're on your break. Whereas when I come back, things have been done and I don't have to think, I feel like I can completely, you know, like, divorce myself from the situation for my break time, enjoy it, um, really have a mental and physical break from what I was doing and then come back and re-engage. This may seem like a super obvious question, but I don't, um, I think it's important to talk about, like, why is it important to take care of yourself or to feel less stressed at work? Like, how does that translate to different patient care? Sure. Well, let me let me give you a an example of when it's really bad. Okay. Um, so during during peak pandemic, peak COVID times, um, uh, I I was uh, one of the the few ECMO nurses working at OHSU, and um, because of that, uh, there was you know I that's all I did. Um, and because we had so many patients that required ECMO, it was like, that's all I did. Um, and there were really no breaks from it to the point where that some nights um, there weren't enough ECMO nurses and our staffing to the ECMO patients continued to dwindle down lower and lower and lower to the point where um, I remember there was even one night where it was basically like, one uh one one to one with each ECMO patient and then we had one backup nurse uh who was there to kind of help break all the ECMO nurses and just the level of stress I was I I ended up being a backup nurse one night and just the level of stress of like having you know at that point I think we had five people on ECMO and so I'm trying to cover someone on their break 
while there's, you know, two mm. other patients that are crashing and dying. And I'm trying to support those people. But, you know, there's like an ECMO machine, a CRT machine, and they're both alarming and the patient's freaking out. You can't get them sedated enough. And, you know, there's just the level of stress. And then, you know, you send this person, you try and send this person on their break, but they feel bad because they feel like they can't leave um, because you are there trying to support everybody else. And there's, it just, it just, there's no, there's no relief. And so, you know, when I finally got to go on my break, even I felt guilty because, you know, there's all of these terrible things happening in these rooms and there's no, and you just feel like, you know, the break is not satisfying. It's not a true break because you're there you run away really quick. You scarf down a bunch of food. You're sitting there worried, 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 worried. And that is not a break. That's like a, a stressful, it's even more stressful because you're, you're not thinking about, you know, you're thinking about work. You're not thinking about other things. You're not taking a true break. For the float nurse model that you're experiencing now, are there mm-hmm. situations where, like, if you have an increase in patient census or the mm-hmm. acuity of the unit shifts, like, do they ever take a patient or is that like, absolutely, nope, doesn't happen? It's been extremely rare. It's happened maybe once or twice that I've seen. But what happens is they figure out ways to either shift assignments or um, kind of look across the cluster in the ICU and see if there's anybody on any other units that can, you know, like shift around and redistribute the nursing resources so that there are appropriate number of float or break nurses to figure out what they need to do. So I think it's only been like once that I've seen where they've They've had only like two float nurses for the unit, uh, but for the majority of time, it's either three or four, depending on the number of patients and nurses that are on the unit. Gotcha. And mm. I asked that question because I think um, in my in my brain and in some of the conversations that I've had, you know, there's sure. varying levels of people who are either really excited and for this bill here in Oregon and there's other folks who have a lot of concern about the implications to an already really taxed hospital system and so but one of and full transparency I don't I don't really know where I am I mean everything that you're saying I'm like absolutely there's so much research about when you get to take a break and you get to walk away how you just make better clinical decisions you make you your resiliency is up, you stay in the uh, profession longer. So um, all of that makes complete sense to me. But one mm-hmm. of the things I guess I'm worried about is that, um, you know, we have had the last several years, but even before the pandemic, you know, there are times when things do surge or a patient that maybe could be paired needs to be singled now. And so I guess sure. from a capacity perspective, that's one of the things I'm worried about is that if we have these sort of like mandated ratios, are we going to be able to be as flexible and nimble? And so I don't know. I don't know if you if you have thoughts on that or, or what you've seen. Sure. You know, it's interesting. I, I always hear that as a concern, but I feel like there's already things in place that like, 
at least in both hospitals that I've been at that kind of help mitigate that. Like, um, I, I can't remember what they, what, what they call it at OHSU, a comp, you, you receive a comp or your comp on call. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, at Stanford, they call it an A day. But basically, you have someone like, you know, like on call sitting in the wings, ready to go to come in if you are overstaffed. And then, yeah, maybe you have to pay them a little bit or a much lower like rate of what their actual rate is, but they're ready to go to come in because they're on the schedule, they're ready to go. And in that way, you can you can be flexible with your staffing. Um, and, you know, it, the other, the alternative to that is you don't have anybody, right? right. Mm-hmm. And then you really, truly are screwed. Like, I have no nurses. There's literally nowhere to put, like, this very sick patient that needs care and yes. somebody else's care suffers. So to, in my brain, the alternative is you have someone with the potential of, you know, long-lasting health effects or dying versus I have to spend, like, maybe a little extra money to have somebody in on reserve in the wing to come in and pick up this patient. Well, and I think it brings the other conversation about we just don't have enough nurses, like even right. in the pipelines. And so I know that's another one of my concerns about, you know, we have plenty of open positions here in my current hospital. Right. Um, and I don't know where they're all going to come from, but you know, some, <laughs> some states have figured it out, right? Like in right. California, it sounds like you guys, you know, there are, there have been just maybe what I think you said, one or two situations where there wasn't um, the right. full complement. And I think, I think a lot of, it's been interesting to see as as the so as a you know travel has been very attractive for a while now because the payment jumped really high and as sure. the pandemic has settled down you know the money has dropped and people have started to settle and it's been interesting to watch and talk with other people that I know who have been traveling to see where they have settled and Stanford in particular has been very successful at luring travelers to go staff because of how comfortable they make it for nurses. The mm. staffing feels good. The money is excellent. And just the the contract they have, the union contract that they have is, is very, um, it's very pro-nurse and it just makes everything feel, you know, you feel safe, you feel supported and you feel like, um, you're going to be able to do the job that you want to do as a nurse and still, uh, you know, make a good wage and and have the appropriate amount of, you know, staffing to do the job you want to do. So it's been interesting. I think since I've been there, I've seen at least seven travelers sign on full time on the unit I work on. And that's a lot. That's a wow, lot of nurses. That is, that is a lot to convert, if you will. <laughs> yeah. Right? It's a lot. Yeah. So I, they, they're doing something right. They're doing something that, that is attractive enough that you have people from all over the country that are deciding, hey, this is the place that I want to be. Well, and you said something just now, too, about doing the work that, doing the job that you want to do. And there's a mm-hmm. lot in the literature about um, moral distress and compassion fatigue and caregiver burnout and there's there's some pieces in there that tie to you know if you have just one of those days where you're running for 12 hours and then you leave Mm -hmm. and you feel like gosh I forgot to do this I didn't do this there's a piece that that adds to moral distress like you know you worked really hard you did the best you could 
but there was still so much that you wish you could have gave. Do you, I don't know, does that resonate with you? And does that also sort of play into some of this, you know, you feeling just overall, I think you mentioned like less stress going into work, you're happier going into work. I think it's interesting because I think another big piece of that, um, that I feel like I'm able to do the job that I want to do is, and I, I don't, I don't, I can't remember if this is part of the Oregon bill or not, but there is a level of ancillary staff that is present at all times on my unit so that there are things that I don't even have to think about. First day I was there, I was, I was, it was nighttime. It was the first thing in the morning. I was like, oh, I need to do my trashes because that's what I would do <laughs> yeah. at OHSU in the morning, right? Because we didn't have housekeeping to come around and clean our rooms and take our trashes out. I, I started doing my trash and my float nurse came up to me and she's like, what are you doing? I was like, well, I need to swap my trash out. She's like, no, no, no. There's the housekeepers will come around and you don't have to do that. I was like, what? What are you talking about? So there's just like little things like that that are no longer my concern or worry. I don't have to restock my own room. I don't have to take out my own trashes. I don't have to clean my floor. I don't, there's just like a litany of things that are no longer my concern and shouldn't be my concern so that I can focus all my effort and energy and thought onto my patient and the care. Mm. So I feel like that's another big piece. Like there's, there's no longer this burden of, am I going to have to end up thinking about two, two other patients that don't belong to me for, you know, 45 minutes to an hour Am I going to have to, you know, think about restocking my room, transporting somebody, you know, like all these crazy things I don't have to think about anymore. And I can just really focus on what I feel like my role is as a nurse in taking care of somebody. I have sort right? of a question. Uh, yeah, I, I'll, <laughs> still, you know, like there's reasons why we haven't been able to do it. Right. Like, um, sure. But, um. I, I, this conversation is just making me think about something. And if you're like, nope, Adrian, you're totally off base or no, ah. I'm not answering that. I will cut it out. <laughs> like, don't worry. We can, we can edit this. Sure. <laughs> but, sure. that, you know, and I don't, I hope that it's evident both in some of my former episodes and, and just knowing me that I truly mm-hmm. believe in building a relationship and trust with your team. I, I, I think that that mm-hmm. is the most important thing as a leader and there's lots mm-hmm. in there about, you know, you've read the things like people don't lead leaders. And mm-hmm. if you Google how nurse leaders are supposed to retain nurses, there's going to be like hundreds of thousands of articles for you to read. But I, right. and I have, I have a very remarkable bias here, Tim. So that's why I want you to like call me on it. <laughs> um, sure. I, I, from what I experience and from what I know about what is still going on there, um, again, mm-hmm. here's, where my bias, here's where my bias is going to come out. That unit mm-hmm. um, on the Hill has mm-hmm. and, and continues to have remarkable, remarkable teamwork. Mm-hmm. And that, here's my bias, right? Yeah. Remarkable leadership, both before me and yeah. after me. And so, yes. And you were very engaged in the unit while you were there. So I guess where my brain's Mm -hmm. going and I'm trying to formulate a question around this is that like, that there are still things that the system that the, you know, in this case, from your opinion, that the 
legislation needs to put in place because um, there are still really great units with really strong leaders and strong cultures. Mm -hmm. And we're still experiencing burnout and we're still not having enough support. Right. Like it shouldn't, I'm just thinking like, it's all, sometimes it feels like it's all on the back of the leader to like, don't let your people leave. Right. And, you know, right. I don't know. I'm rambling, but am I making sense? <laughs> like, is there no, a question totally. in there somewhere? And you can disagree I, with that. <laughs> yeah, no, no. And I would agree with that. It, it's funny because that, that is, that is the one piece of being down here in, in California at, on the unit that I work on that I have found lacking. Mm-hmm. Um, I have four managers what? and <laughs> I, yes, I have four managers, Wow! which, which, which to me is a level of, you know, like bureaucracy that is unnecessary. Mm. Um, and it, it feels very impersonal and this is, I'm not going to call out names or anything, but there's, there's just this like disconnect where, Whereas what I was used to before, and I think this is a credit to you uh, in particular, where I felt like I knew who my manager was, I felt like they cared about me, and I felt like the things you were trying to do as a manager were in service to helping me do my job better. Whereas the management that I work with now, it feels like their job is to come around and make sure that I have not missed anything and that all of the little boxes that the, you know, that's going to get money uh, for the hospital have been checked. So there's this, I don't feel like they're a manager there for me. They're a manager there as overseers for the hospital. Oh, interesting. And yeah, so despite the the comfort and ease with which I feel like the rest of uh, the the job is set up for, that is the one piece that, you know, I, I'm very, very dissatisfied with. And Got what it. I really, truly miss about, you know, working at OHSU and working on, you know, the MICU where I came from. So yeah, it's, it's been really fascinating to, to have that extreme dichotomy of like, the staffing is wonderful, the supplies are there, the ancillary staff is there. There's all these things that make my job easier. But now I also have a management team that just comes around and is nitpicking. Sure. <laughs> fair, fair. <laughs> Almost um, to a point of like tone, tone deafness. <laughs> well, what I'm what I'm hearing you say is we need both, right? Imagine if you had both yeah. of those things collide. Yes. Like, nobody oh would gosh. leave that place. <laughs> no, they wouldn't. They truly wouldn't. Oh, it feels good to hear you. So thank you for, thank you for your kind words, but it feels good to hear of you course. say that too, because I do think there is, um, again, my bias coming out, but I think there's a lot of pressure right now and there always has been, but maybe more so yeah. now that we're seeing some hospitals and some units with turnover rates in like the 40, 50 plus percentage. And, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's a lot of pressure about, well, people, you know, if the work environment and the nurse leader, and I believe all of those things to be true, but I think mm-hmm. you're, what I'm hearing from you is that there's also some sy- systemic support that has to be there as well, because, um, absolutely, and we need, you need, 
you need both. You need all of the things. Yeah. We need system support. We need process support and we need, yeah. we need great leaders. Yeah. Mm. Why do you think there is, why do you think this is such a hot topic, Tim? Why do you think mm -hmm. that this isn't just like a slam dunk? Yeah, makes sense. It's going to keep people safer, keep nurses more, um, you know, less stressed, all of those things. Like what, what's your perspective yeah. on why, why it continues to be a hot topic? Yeah. I mean, I think the simple answer is money. Mm, um, fair. As, as hard as that, you know, as hard as that is to, you know, parse out and break down. Um, I think it always is going to come back to money. We have a healthcare system that's, uh, it's a capitalist system, right? Like everything is driven by revenue. Um, mm -hmm. And every time, I mean, you know this, whenever you wanted something for us to make our jobs easier, you had to collect data and provide it to the upper ups and then they would scrutinize it and look for holes in it. And if you could justify it just right, then we could finally receive the thing that we had worked really hard for. So it's, it's always an uphill battle where you have uh, a company um, that is trying to turn out profit and decrease their overhead. And as, as a line item, nurses are expensive. We're very mm -hmm. expensive. Mm -hmm. um, but you also can't do your service without us. We are the service, right? Right. Um, and so it's just, it's another thing to try and justify. And so I think, I think what's really important about this bill is that it, it is like anything else within government, it's regulating what a business can do in order to protect and um, help other people in, in the face of making a profit, right? That's why we have regulations on banks. That's why we have regulations on businesses to protect people, the environment, um, health and safety, all, all everything about our way of life in the face of, you know, making a profit and, and um, making money. So I think, I think it's truly a really important thing to try and get past because I, I, you know, there is, there is the, the thought that, you know, if we do this, it's going to be so expensive and, you know, mm -hmm. what are we going to do? We're not going to make as much money. We'll have to shut hospitals down. There's not enough nurses, yada, 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 the list goes on and on. But I think what it, what is most important and what it should always come back to is we're doing this in order to protect the people that need this care, right? We're trying to provide the best possible care. And there's all kinds of data about it too, right? You look mm -hmm. at patient outcomes versus staffing ratios. And, you know, I can, I can attest from personal experience, the days where I feel like I've done the most and had the best day with a patient is when I've been one-to-one -one with a patient. The amount of care I can progress on a single person, not having to think about anything else and split my focus, it's incredible. And I feel so fulfilled after I've done that. And that patient, the relationship, the rapport I've been able to build, the amount of things we've been able to get done, like it just, it, it's so much different than if I have two. And I can't even imagine having to have three. That's insane to me. I, I feel like I probably wouldn't get anything done. I, you know, I'd throw meds down into somebody and maybe, you know, get their turns done and, and that would be it. 
Whereas, you know, I have a single patient. I got them out of bed three times. They mm -hmm. ate, they moved, they, you know, they, they got all their medications. We, you know, we, we got all their specialties done. I was able to have conversations with their doctors because I noticed this and that, and they got better. Mm. So I don't know. That's kind of what it all comes down to for me. And that, sorry, that devolved into a larger <laughs> no, <it's> discussion, <laughs> but. <laughs> well, it, it it's reminding me of what you said earlier about, because you, you kept saying like progressing their care and getting them better yeah. as, as opposed to like this idling. Right. And I know you were using it yeah. in the context of a break, but I think it applies here yeah. too. Yeah. 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 And you know, Absolutely. I think, I, I think you're right. There is a huge financial implication. And frankly, mm -hmm. as an industry, we've priced ourselves out of business, right? Like our customers yeah. can't afford us anymore. So right. there obviously has to be a huge shift. And I, I think you're right. I mean, figuring out how to, how to adjust differently or elsewhere. And you brought mm -hmm. up a really good point. I mean, um, there is a lot, a lot of data about, you know, even a single catheter associated urinary tract infection or a, mm -hmm. um, I think I just read, um, I don't know why I'm saying, I think I did just read that like a clad <laughs> a, a central line associated bloodstream infection, um, will cost the hospital $45,000. Um, right. and so, yeah. And it's, I think there's work to be done. You're right. I do like justifying data. <laughs> My God, I got, you know, right. to, to show that link between different levels of care and the outcomes that it can provide. And some of that is mm -hmm. hard to quantify as well. Like what you were talking about mm -hmm. earlier, that leaving at the end of the day, feeling like you gave everything, you know, mm -hmm. it's hard to quantify having someone have a peaceful death is also mm -hmm. a very situation where it needs your undivided mm -hmm. attention. And that's hard to quantify, right? But I think, right. you know, the world according to Adrian, we're able to quantify that. We're able to show the, the impact to the, you know, right? When the family mm -hmm. members, when you were able to set up the room and really make the patient comfortable and connect with them, it just makes so much of a difference when versus the alternative. So- Right. I'm rambling right. now. I can feel it. <laughs> no, no. And I, and to your point, like you can, you, I mean, there is a quantification of that, right? It's customer mm -hmm. satisfaction. Mm. It's customer yeah. satisfaction. Like, and, and I can think of the times when I have been able to provide really excellent end of life care. I even, I even ended up winning an award for it. Like someone took the time and wrote this big, long thing and I ended up winning, uh, what is it? The, the Rose Award. I got a rose award for doing end of, thank, thank you for, for doing end of life care. Like I was with a patient one-to-one -one for three days. It was really intense, but you know, I helped them get to that point where they could, they could help, you know, make that decision and help their loved one pass. And it was, it was really lovely. Like she felt like there was a connection. She was able to express her gratitude and show you know that's customer satisfaction right that's what that's what every business uses as a metric that provides a service so i sure. think there is justification there from a corporate yeah. level yeah no that's great perspective i'm just sort of pivoting us just a little bit what mm -hmm. i can hear again i'm so biased but i can hear the 
the joy <laughs> in your tone when you talk about the days that you were able to give that really great care. And I'm just uh, curious, mm-hmm. Tim, what, what brings you the most joy about being a nurse? Gosh, um, that's a, that's a really hard question because there's a lot of things. I think when I think about the best days I've had in nursing, it's when I've been able to like use the entirety of my skill set. So I've been able to use my brain, my physicality, my emotional connections and help either, you know, progress someone's care and help them get better or um, on the opposite end of that, if it, if, if it is their time to go, like help usher them into that end of life. Mm. Um, and so when I've been able to do that and just really focus on a person and where they're at in whatever healthcare issue that they're facing, that feels really good. And that feels very fulfilling. And I think those are the situations that I really try and seek out um, within the job. Um, and, and that's why I find it really satisfying too, because uh, on a good day like that, I feel tired, um, but in a way that is like, I've done a really good thing and a good job mm. and used all of my abilities to their fullest to truly help someone. That's beautiful. I love that. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. Thank that. you. Of course. It's interesting to me that like your best day, you leave really tired, right? Like it just yes. speaks, it just speaks to um that the the art part of nursing, right? You you sort of mm-hmm. um you brought up both of those things. The the complexity that you're able to provide of a level of care, but also you know, bringing out that compassion and, and, and that's really draining, but that's what brings you joy. And so mm-hmm. it's no surprise kind of circling back that there's so much value for you when you are able to disconnect and recharge your battery during your shift, because you're give, you're really giving so much of yourself during this 12 plus hours. And so if we can create and support a system that allows you to recharge in the middle of the day, how much better for the people that get to be cared for by you so much better (laughs) (laughs) uh was there anything that i um that i didn't ask that i should have tim (laughs) or i don't think so i think to talk about (laughs) i i think we covered we covered a decent amount oh i am so so grateful for for your time and your willingness to come and talk to me about this and i I know that it's going to give, um, it's given me a lot to think about and, and a different perspective. And, and that's my, my hope and my intention with this conversation. So thank you so much. Of course. You're welcome. Thank you. Wonderful. Okay. Well, we'll talk soon. Sounds good. Thank you, Adrian. Thanks. Bye-bye. Next, I have a very thought-provoking conversation with the transformational nurse leader, Stephanie. Stephanie was instrumental in my career early on, and she really helped inspire my love of critical care nursing. She gives her perspective on some of my concern with capacity constraints and meeting the demand of our community if we were to have mandatory staffing ratios. 
I could have talked to her for hours and hours, and I'm excited for you to hear her perspective and likely be inspired by her passion around influencing change. Oh, thank you. So we were talking for, I feel like we could talk forever catching up. Um, we've known each other for quite a while, but um, I just, do you mind just kicking us off and letting us uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your, um, your relationship to healthcare, if you will? <laughs> yeah, that's my pleasure. Um, I am uh originally from Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I worked, um, I started my hospital career at the University of New Mexico uh, Hospital, which is a level one trauma center, and the state's only level one trauma center, and I had the pleasure of working there for 32 years, and um, during that period of time, I worked in every department, literally from um, neonates to um, adult geriatric patients in the critical care unit. I was a bedside nurse. I was an ECMO specialist. Um, and then for the past 10 years have been in formal nursing leadership and have always just really enjoyed um, critical care nursing. I was a clinical nurse instructor and took my students to the ICU that I worked in and had the time of my life with them. And that's how I got to meet you. Yay. And um, yeah, I just have a very deep um, love, if you will, for that type of patient population. It doesn't matter if they're, they have a medical problem or a surgical problem. I just have uh, never lost my fascination for the human condition and it's in its uh, finest form in the ICU. So um, I currently work um, out in San Diego for a large healthcare system and um, manage a, a large group of nurses in a, a surgical critical care environment. And uh, we very much enjoy having mandatory ratios, or at least I do, um, because it's, I, I've noticed um, some definite safety in all of that, in, in addition to the, the improvement of the well-being of the nurses. Excited to dig into that topic with you. Um, and you're right, yes, I've had the pleasure. Uh, I was just thinking as you were talking, Stephanie, so you were one of my first and when I was first discovering that I loved critical care. So I have so many fond memories of those days. And then I think when, as coincidence would have it, when I first became an assistant nurse manager and I was going to hire my first nurse from out of state, you were the very first person I ever called for a reference on this nurse. And so you've been a part of my career uh, this whole time. And so I'm just, I forgot about that. Um, you, I was able to practice on you uh, asking for references. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> that was my first hire was another nurse from UNM. You know, I do remember that now that you <laughs> mentioned it. And I'm glad that, that you have that memory as well. It's so, it's, there's just a special bond with us nurses. So I'm so grateful. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your super busy day to talk to me about um, 
mandatory ratios. It's a, there's a bill that we're looking to pass that will mandate uh, staffing ratios. And so it's a, you know, super hot topic here. And I've never worked in a state with uh, mandatory ratios. And so, you know, I'm just curious from, you know, I've read the bill. I, I think I understand it. There's a lot of complexity to it, of course, but I was really just curious to talk to someone who's worked in both environments. And, and you mentioned that you, um, you enjoy them and you think that they're, that the safety is improved. So I'm just curious your perspective on why you think it's improved, uh, why staffing ratios have improved patient safety. Yeah. So, you know, on, on any given day, as you know, it's the predictability of patient complexity changes uh, sometimes in just a matter of seconds. And as, as good as we are at trying to buffer some of that, we, we don't always get hit the targets just right because the human condition is going to do whatever it's going to do. And we're just there to, you know, execute plan A, B, C, D, whichever plan we need to follow through with whichever plan works, I guess. <laughs> and um, having the, the ability to have a, uh, when you, so I'll just use the example of my current department and uh, we will talk a little bit about the design of that department and the amount of resources that it takes on any given day to manage the workload in a 24-bed critical care unit. And um, when you have the ability to have a free charge nurse free of patient care responsibility in the front half of the department, and then another resource nurse on the back end. So in theory, it's like having two charge nurses for 24 beds. Mm -hmm. And this is how my department is staffed every day, unless our census is such that we don't need that second free resource. Um, and there are times that the census will dip and we're able to flex and do a bunch of crazy things. But the, the issue that this hospital currently is facing is, a, is a, a, an issue of capacity because it's overflowing 99.9% .9 of the time. Mm. So we then will end up with medical ICU patients that overflow into the surgical environment. And then there are no beds for the traumas or the ORs that have been scheduled or for the women's hospital crashing postpartum, antepartum moms. Um, so, you know, in a unit like this, um, as you know, when it's a, when you're in a trauma center, you're getting patients from all over the place and they just arrive. And, and as long as we have a bed, we just kind of absorb whatever comes our way because that's the nature of that department. And so one nurse managing a, an incoming admission and another critically ill patient will need a lot of assistance getting a patient settled in and many times that assistance, while it's great to have your non-licensed staff, your healthcare associate, your tech, whatever the, the ancillary staffer is called, that person is not a nurse. They cannot 
administer drugs or hang your drips or start your levo or give that bolus they can help you settle but that's about it you mm -hmm. need another set of hands usually to manage all of that and to make sure that the other patient that you are not going to see sometimes for hours is okay Mm -hmm. And without asking your coworker who's managing their own sick patient assignment to now watch yours while you're dealing with this, and that's what happens in a non, uh, you know, in a in an environment where there are no ratios, and you know, nurses are being asked to take more than two ICU patients. In my opinion, and I think that I have some authority to speak on this, having been in critical care for over 30 years. That is just scary stuff mm -hmm. because those other, you're asking a lot of one person to, to be capable of managing things known and unknown. When you get an admission from the ER, you don't know what you're getting into until they get there and start unraveling. Mm -hmm. And, you know, every patient that ever gets a bolus of fluid, they always get sick after they get that little spark of fluid in them. Everything just sort of blossoms and then you're in the thick of things. So the, the patient's condition is something that seems to not be ever like of concern when we're making decisions like this and it has to be part of the conversation because it's not just, Oh, and the nurse will get this admission and everything will be rainbows and butterflies. Cause sometimes it goes to, you know, where in a handbasket really fast and mm -hmm. it, it's those unpredictable things are, can be traumatizing. The nurses don't want to go home feeling like they, did somebody an injustice because they weren't able to take care of the other patient and, and, or, you know, having their coworker have to take an extra load, those things wear nurses down. It bothers them to not be able to do what they need to do or to give subpar care because they, they had to give their all somewhere else and there weren't enough nurses to manage all the other stuff going on. You know, so it's that's the type of safety that really is really important in the in taking care of patients. You want the patients to be safe, but you also need those nurses to be safe. They deserve that. They're there doing some crazy stuff all day long, every day. You got to admit. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's not normal. We normalize things that are not okay. And we're dealing with, we're meeting people on the worst day of their life every day. And we've normalized it because that's what we do, but it's not normal. <laughs> and we're still human beings at the end of the day. And I can't help but wonder how much of that is going to go on to really, really impact the nurses of our future because we you know, just seem to be getting further and further away from what, what we're actually there to do. And I don't want to see that change. I want nurses to want to work at the bedside because that's always going to be there. 
hospitals were built for nurses to do to give nursing care Mm -hmm. and we need to own that instead of allowing other people to make decisions for us and in terms of of managing surges of patients we did um some very clever and creative things, you know, out of really hard things come really astounding works of art. Mm. And nurses in our hospital were trained, we trained PCU nurses to be RN extenders. And the non-COVID patient population, we moved into our PACU because our entire surgical unit was converted into a COVID ICU. And um, the non-COVID patients were, were off in another space. And the ratio, um, so two um, nurses, an ICU nurse and an ICU nurse extender would take care of three ICU patients. And we would always try to make sure that those assignments were made with a lot of thought so that the ICU nurse didn't feel overwhelmed, but had another registered nurse mm-hmm. helping deliver high quality nursing care. And during that, that was during some really dark days of COVID when it was just really, really exhausting and everybody was at their wits end. And I saw some of the most beautiful camaraderie and teamwork form out of those um, amazing um, initiatives that nurses came up with in order to make sure that we kept nurses and patients safe. And we had to get, you know, special permission from the state of California and all of these, California is very different than New Mexico in a lot of ways, but my general impression after being here for three and a half years is that they care about the nurses. And they, I get that feeling. I mean, I came from an environment where I had 13 nurses on the schedule. And if I had 14, it was considered egregious and that I shouldn't have an extra nurse and that nurse should be floated to another unit. And it was like, but we really need that nurse here to help us with all the things going on. And so it was very shut down about the need for that extra resource and and how important that was to everybody's well-being um that wasn't something that we we had a lot of um help with back home and coming here it's much different i just it people seem happier um people seem very thankful for having what they have and having the ability to go off to their lunch break, knowing that their patients are going to be safe because there's more than just two eyes on them. You know, maybe, maybe not, maybe you got called off to another emergency while your friends were at lunch. You just, you just, you don't have that going on here. It's very methodical and, and the nurses are very accustomed to it. So it's very rare that anybody miss a lunch break too. You know, and I guess I hadn't thought about it from that when an admission comes, right? I've been sort of thinking about it from a, you know, the meal and break perspective as well. Um, so that was really good 
perspective as well. Because to your point, you may sort of be build something is coming from the ED or coming from an outside hospital and they get there and they look very different. Um, you said something though that uh, really resonated with me about you know, nurses feeling bad when they aren't able to care for the patient the way they want to, you know, and we are reading so much now about the nursing shortage, and we just don't have enough bedside nurses. And there's a lot of theories about why that is. But I'm just curious your perspective on how much you think that that piece in particular plays into this, right? There's nothing I mean, there's a lot of things worse, but there is a, it's terrible when you leave after the end of a 12, 13 hour day and you feel like you could have given more or done more. So I'm curious how much you think that that plays into why people are maybe leaving the bedside or, you know, the compassion, fatigue and moral injury that we're, I mean, do you think that that plays a lot into it? Just this feeling of, I could have done more, I should have done more. Oh, definitely. I, I think that that, problem is multifaceted and and there's a lot that goes into that um and i often you know i am very fascinated with the resilience of one nurse versus the resilience of another nurse and because we don't ever really know what is going on with people in their own life we have to also recognize that that has a profound impact on their performance at work and, you know, we've all been taught, you know, oh, if you're having problems, you need to leave those at the door. And when you come to work, you need to be all work. And that is about the dumbest thing I think I've ever heard in my life, <laughs> because it doesn't you can say that all you want. But when people are in crisis, that they're not capable of leaving it at the door. Mm -hmm. And so there's. I think the pandemic created a lot of problems that maybe were going to happen, but just became profoundly illuminated and especially in nursing and especially in hospitals. And it all just kind of gets back down to the fact that, you know, the nurse is part of the room charge and mm. how that makes, how that, that just, to me, it's like, it's pretty clear that that's why we're sort of bundled up in this package that just makes it seem like it's a one size fits all kind of situation. And if you didn't meet that productivity mark, you know, you're, you must be doing something wrong or you're, you know, living off the fat of the lamb or you're, you know, you're too fluffy <laughs> or you're this or you're that. And it's like, no, I'm really just trying to make this a place where nurses want to work, where they don't feel like they're always um, being told to do more with less. And I understand that it's a business and I understand there's a recession. Like I get all of those things. I've, I've been around a really long time and I, I worry, you know, about the, the integrity of the finances of, of any hospital because it of the of the foundations that that's all built on, and again, can't that's another podcast topic because a problem that seems so big that it doesn't even seem solvable because it would take so much to reform all of that, and you know we're kind of stuck in corporate in a corporate world where we do human things that that don't make sense to the corporate world. 
And I, I don't know, I, maybe that's what my calling is, is to somehow call that to light so that we can actually get some clear understanding on multiple levels about how important it is for your nurse to be able to take care of you and not, you know, called off to hunt down the bedpan because it's being stocked in the back of the unit, but not in the front of the unit. Like things like that happen all the time. Mm -hmm. It's simple things that make life better. And it's then the red tape that it takes to just make a simple change. Nurses don't appreciate that. That contributes to that burnout feeling of, I just can't do enough. Yeah, we talked about it a little bit before we jumped on the um, the recording, but, you know, we're often asked to do, you know, it, the buck kind of stops with the nurse, right? So every other department, and this is, thank God for all of those other departments, but when they're short-staffed, the answer is, well, nursing will need to do that. And um, I, I agree, a whole other probably podcast series about um you know, to you, to quote you, right, the foundations of how our finances were built, it, it, I think it's going to take a big shakeup to, you know, stop thinking about nurses as a room charge. Right. Um, They're powerful change makers doing powerful things every single day. And to think that it's okay to load them down with ancillary work seems unreasonable to me we don't expect the surgeon to go pick up trays when he's done operating it just doesn't make any sense that sounds a little like like I don't know a hierarchy that shouldn't really be existing in healthcare. Mm. um you know it it just why 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 don't we ask the surgeon to do that what would the answer be I wonder but it's okay to ask the nurse oh because she's there Oh, okay, while well, she's doing chest compressions, we'll make sure that those trays get picked up. That's right. Yeah. Um, one of the other things that I hear from my colleagues or, you know, people that have some big concerns about mandated staffing ratios is, you know, how are we going to meet the needs of the community when we have these capacity restraints? I, I think we're the most underbedded state in the, in the United States. So there is a big fear that we're going to have to shut down beds, which is going to decrease the access to care for our community. And so I'm just curious from your experience in California, have there been situations where you weren't able to, because of the ratios, um, and to fill your unit or to fill all of your beds, then and access to care was decreased? Or do you, have you guys already built in systems to protect from that well so our hospital very much values the traveler or the agency piece maybe not as much as they once did but um had it set up like when for summertime when people really needed time off this is another reason that i really am grateful to work at this hospital is that they think about things like this but instead of you know, asking the staff to work a bunch of overtime to cover, you know, people going out on vacation or to be able to let a few more people off at a time or whatever the case, they'll hire travelers for seasonal opportunities. And people love to come uh, to San Diego. So it's very easy to get people to agree 
to come and work here. They also offer premium incentives to to call people in when we need extra help. And we often offer incentives early. Like if I know that my day shift is going to be short staffed, I'll collaborate with the other leaders and figure out if that's going to be okay or if we're going to have to you know, uh, ask for more help or whatever. And that's how we get more help. In the trauma ICU, you never get to say no. Mm-hmm. So the way that we do that is we play Tetris all day long. It's one for one. We'll transfer one out to get one in and then we'll transfer another one out and get one in and we'll move another one and we'll get one in. And that'll be that slow moving all day long because there's something wrong with throughput and something wrong with the fact that everybody gets discharged at four o'clock in the afternoon (laughs) when they should be gone home at 11 or whatever the case. So there's that. That's a whole another podcast series. The long and the short of it is that um, we don't ever get to close. The, The trauma ICU is never closed. We may not ever be able to put a patient in a bed, but we'll move somebody out to make sure that we can get another one in. Does that make sense? It does. And I think that's where my, if I had any concern at all with mandated staffing ratios, it was that, you know, I really have the, you know, this feeling and this calling of, you know, we've got to support the community, especially working in a tertiary quaternary center, like you do, like, like I grew up in right at UNM there, you know, that there's services that only your hospital, only your docs, only your nurses, your whole team can provide. And so I just feel like, gosh, what if we were have to turn down patients, but it sounds like you guys have that mindset. You don't say no, but you've created a lot of processes to, to prevent that from happening. It sounds like. Right. We get, you know, um, an example of that, there was a night or two that both ICUs were jam packed full and there was chaos in the ER and it was just a wild night in San Diego And they got this call to transfer a really sick patient who was probably going to need ECMO because my unit is the ECMO center. And um, uh, that they accepted that patient, even though we we had some challenging staffing and we were going to have to do a bunch of maneuvers, but we do that for the community. And I think that that is also not well known And in order to do those heavy, heavy lifts, you need extra people. So the other thing that I would just put out there is that if that becomes something that is going to come down the pike, that you start hiring up so that you're ready for that, because then that way it'll be built in to place. If that's Mm -hmm. something that comes up, and I'm sure the hospital will have to understand that in order to have ratios you have to have enough people on board to make that work it takes more nurses and that's that's also not the pill that anybody wants to swallow but every day in my unit instead of having 13 nurses with 14 being an over staff there's i have days where there's 18 19 sometimes 20 of them on and i've got a 24 bed unit but i could also have seven patients on ecmo at the same time, those patients are one-to-ones. So we, 
there's a huge emphasis on on making sure that we've got resources and it's very uncommon that I'm the one out there schlepping the charge phone because you know I I could not be trusted in a patient's room at this point I can do chest compressions I can I can run a code I can do stuff like that but don't ask me to manage those funky pumps uh I could probably manage the ventilator just fine, but like, I'm not the person that should be the charge nurse when the unit is short staffed three days a week. Um, The manager should not have be having to do that. And that was often what I had to do back home and not always it was, it happened all the time, but it was an expectation and that's all fine and good until it comes down to managing patients or watching after patients. I haven't been had a competency validated other than my ability to do ACLS. You know what I mean? I'm yeah. not the bedside nurse anymore. So why would you put me in that position and make it unsafe? I can okay. help, but I shouldn't be the care provider. That isn't how you fill a staffing need. You, you fill that with an FTE. I think sometimes we talk out of both sides of our head too. Like I've, I've both received and given this advice to new nurse leaders about, you know, when you step into nursing leadership, now your specialty has changed. Right. And so you need to start taking leadership classes and really Mm -hmm. focus on that. Mm -hmm. But then in the same breath, we do ask our nurse managers to be in charge or be prepared to take an assignment. And I'm like, well, wait, I just spent a year asking them to like step away from the clinical focus. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's, I, I agree completely with you is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, um, I know. And it is, I, I'm, uh, I have always sort of liked to challenge the status quo and challenge people to think another way. You don't have to agree with me. That's what makes this all beautiful is that we get to have our own, ideas but Mm -hmm. to just really sit down and think about what we're asking people to do because that's what I do every day in my unit when I walk the floor because I round and round and round and round again on (laughs) patients on nurses on the respiratory therapist I just am trying to harvest as much feedback as I can so that I can do what I can to impact better workflow, better outcomes, better relationships, better leadership. And, um, you know, because the, the leader isn't always, you know, the, the, the being in this sort of, of a position is very, very challenging. It takes a lot of grit to be a leader in an ICU in general, but you also have to have the ability to be compassionate and thoughtful in your interactions with other people. And it's a very challenging job. And I firmly, firmly, firmly believe that if I, as their leader, am not advocating for them and not calling out the the gaps that I see when it comes to that kind of stuff, then I'm not doing them any favors And then I'm accepting what I don't like about our profession or the way our profession gets treated. And I need to change that. And the only way I can do that is when I say things like that, because that rubs every single executive the absolute wrong way. But you know what? That has to change. 
that mm-hmm. cannot continue in healthcare. It cannot be be treated like it's a non-issue. And so when we say that, yeah, we expect you to be able to do all these things, I get that in an emergency. I'm not going to be like, yeah, no, I'm not going to take care of any patients because I've, you know, I'm, sure. I will jump in and I will do whatever it takes. And everybody, everybody would. That's what we do. But to have the expectation regularly, how is that manager going to then manage their department? How are you going to be the CEO of your department when you're always staffing and you can't get, you can't make relationships with your staff to harvest their feedback, to find out what's important to them, to advocate for them because you're always doing patient care. Yes, the patients are very important, but so is that staff. Hmm. And do they and they all love when the manager comes out. You know, I wear scrubs to work every single day. I am just addicted to wearing pajamas, I think. But I'm in the <laughs> scrubs every day because I never really know what I'm going to get called into because I am very regularly, routinely with my hands on people doing something. Um, but it's assisting. It's not being in charge of it. I'm there to help. Or I go in and I'm like, what are you doing here? This looks really fun. What is that patient's <laughs> That'll never change about me. But when I do that, I make connections with my staff and then have the absolute joy of having them come back and tell me things like, I really love that you know what's going on out there because it really means a lot that you used to do this and you can understand like that, that is really, really impactful for nurses at the bedside when their direct leader can walk the walk and talk the talk and talk the other talk. Cause you have mm-hmm. to learn different talk when you're a leader. Um, and you're that liaison between the, the executive and, and the bedside and, you know, we have an opportunity to do great things and help nurses out of this weird crisis and make environments um, really more um, tolerable. And I would also just like to put out there that the American Association of Critical Care Nurses has um, a survey that any department can do. And if you're a member of the AACN, it's, this is all available to you with your membership, but you can send a survey to your staff and ask them about the health of the environment because the AACN set the standards for a healthy work environment and has tenants to work off of. And some of those tenants are what we talked about today, um, true collaboration, skilled communication, um, recognition, um, being advocates, things like that. And, and there are ways that you can assess environments and try to harvest information about what you can do to make changes. And, and the more of that we do, the more we listen the more skilled we are as leaders, the better off we will be at getting the changes that we want because we can do so in smart, scientific, articulate ways. And not just because, you know, you're having a meltdown because you haven't eaten lunch and you got your second admission. You know what I mean? Mm, you come yeah. from it with a whole different perspective because you have data. 
we need data. Nurses need to need to be able to speak data talk so that you can drive that with that information. That's powerful. I feel like every sentence could be a whole other discussion. This has been. <laughs> <laughs> I've had a lot of time to think about all of these things. And as I try to figure out what it is that my do to catapult this to the next level so that nurses coming up don't have to worry about this anymore mm-hmm. you know excited to be able to to talk to you and learn from you continually right from the time uh-huh. I was a, a new a new nursing student to to now in my career it's obviously I'm getting very sentimental um oh. <laughs> and I, I appreciate you being able, you being willing to talk about it. You know, I, but not a lot of people are willing to talk about it. And so I'm super grateful that you're like, yeah, I'll talk about it because like we were talking about a little bit before we started recording, you know, as long as we continue to not be willing to talk about it or to only talk about it with like other nurse leaders, you know, let's not talk about it with any of our staff that might be in the union or outside of the union, like we're just, we're basically asking the government to make decisions for us. And so I'm, I'm so, so grateful for this uh, opportunity to talk to you. And if it's okay, I have one more question. Well, I have 50, but I'll just ask one more. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, You know, on this same note, the people that are concerned about staffing ratios is that there's, we just already don't have, you know, we have some units that have 10, 15 open positions. And so the ability to recruit, because, you know, you mentioned if, if, if the law is going to pass, we need to hire. And I, I also am concerned about where we're going to get these nurses from. And so do you, um, but then, you know, in having a conversation with you and a bedside nurse who also works in California, you know, the perspective has been, well, this is going to help with recruitment, right? And so what's your, do you have any thoughts about that, about the concern about, well, there's just not enough nurses? Yeah, I um, believe that there are lots and lots of nurses out there who are just unwilling to work in environments that are not protected. And by Mm. protected, I mean that protects them from doing some of the things that we talked about, taking more than two patients, watching six patients while someone goes to lunch, um, managing an admission with little to no resources when a patient is critically ill and you really need another nurse to help you with that. Um, those are recruitment tools right there. Any ICU nurse that you ever talk to, what they want to know is, do you have help? That's almost what every nurse I interview wants to know about. Uh, In terms of my ability to recruit, once the travel companies sort of um, stopped, you know, paying the travelers tons and tons of money and then it, that created a lot of animosity in in hospitals and mm-hmm. hospital nurses and all of that stuff so a lot of those nurses who traveled um previously now want permanent positions so again southern california is a very very popular place to live and especially um i mean it attracts people of all ages I just hired a nurse who has 40 years of nursing experience, who is from San Diego. 
but I had the most ever um, applications of experienced ICU nurses that I've ever seen in my entire nursing career recently when I had at least 15 to 20 seasoned ICU nurses apply for jobs in my department. And I hired a lot of them because I don't think that's going to happen again for a really long time. And I'm hoping that that because my department was very understaffed when I came to work there and then we got hit with the pandemic and I had a huge turnover of nurses that didn't, um, you know, they were taking care of medical patients. They worked in a surgical unit. They were not happy and they left and they Mm -hmm. went to go travel. Um, So I ended up with these huge, like you said, 10 to 15 vacancies. My unit had about 20 uh, or 25 vacancies and I was always scrambling. And we just hired within the last, um, I would say 60 days, we hired 25 nurses alone for my department. And I will finally be at my budgeted FTEs and a little bit over. Because what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to now post more per diem positions and more part-time positions so that we provide some flexibility to moms who have little kids, to people who are struggling to, to keep intact, you know, but still love the work that they do. If I have enough staff, I can do things like that. I can post positions for them to go and do, have like a, we have this 50-50 position where they work part-time in SICU and part-time ECMO specialists do things that make people feel inspired, take off, take away some of that burnout of being at the bedside day after day after day, make it so that they appreciate it more and more by providing them life balance. It, we need to stop thinking that work is all people think about. It can't be. It's, it, it, that's why people become so down we lose nurses every day to suicide it's there's more to it than just work and just home it's a combination of all of that and i i that i i want that to change i don't want to see that mm. i don't like that it's that's overwhelming to me i lost a nurse to suicide when i was a leader in New Mexico. And I have still not gotten over that. Oh, wow. I'm sorry to hear that. And it's just too much to think that they go home and worry about what they didn't do at work and worry about what they didn't do at home or feel bad because they're, they, you know, work three days a week or, you know, never see their kids or whatever the case. I'm trying to figure out all the things that I can figure out to make being at the bedside worth it and and make people want to be there i love the bedside i that was my the best job i've ever had in my life was a bedside icu nurse i loved that job you've like inspired me i i keep like i'm writing you can't see me but i'm like writing all these notes there's a ton of exclamation <laughs> points everywhere um because you know, that's one thing that the um, the bedside nurse who I was able to speak to about his perception of staffing ratios 
um, said as well is that like, you have to have both. You have to feel safe that you're going to have the right amount of staff and you have to have a great leader. And I think that's the key, right? We've been putting all of this emphasis on, you know, people don't leave a job, they leave their manager and all of that feels really heavy. And I don't love that. I don't, (laughs) but also I think it's both, right? I think what the current labor market is telling us is it's no, it's really, they, they expect and they deserve both, right? They need great leaders. They need inspirational leaders who they can trust. And we have to have the safety uh, nets in place. We have to have the right processes for things. Right. That's right. We do. Well, I cannot wait to see and follow along all the amazing things that you do. And don't be uh, surprised if I continue to uh, uh, try to cross paths uh, uh, again and again and again so I can continue to learn from you and be a part of all the greatness that you're doing. And again, I just want to thank you so much for being willing to come on and talk to me. And um, yeah, thank you for your time. Well, thank you for having me participate. I feel very honored and I learn um, from people around me all the time. And I think that it's important to have connections. And so it's fine with me if you contact me over and over and over again, because (laughs) I will never, I will never be tired of nursing. Oh, gosh. So inspirational. Okay. There's nothing else to add to that. Okay. Okay. We'll (laughs) talk soon. Thanks, Stephanie. Thank you, Adrian. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to these two incredible nurses and their perspectives on mandatory staffing ratios and what they think will help keep our nurses engaged and patients safe. I hope this inspires more curiosity and willingness to share your perspective with someone who has a different viewpoint. I started this podcast for this very reason. I'm so concerned that if we don't have these conversations with each other and with those of diverse experiences, that we leave the conversation and innovation to very well-intended folks who are not doing the work every day. With that, if you have an alternative perspective, I would love to have a conversation with you. Please reach out via email at gettheconversationstarted at gmail.com. Or on social media, my Instagram is at amcdougal84. I'd love to keep the conversation going. As always, thank you for listening and I appreciate you.